It's March 25th, 2015, and welcome to another edition of Bite Marks Cafe, where we serve you the first bite of today's technology. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. First, we'll cover a couple of local science and tech stories, and then we're going to speak with Jake Ross about the cyber hui and the latest on Cyber Patriot and Hacker Jeopardy. Then Ryan Salcido is here to tell us about the newly formed Hawaii Drone Club. Finally, we'll talk with students and teachers from Iolani and Kealakehe High Schools about their work on a NASA mission to the moon. So have your questions and thoughts ready to call in or tweet, but first, the headlines. A Danish company has formed a Hawaii subsidiary and announced plans to build a large-scale offshore wind energy project, AW Hawaii Wind LLC, and its backers have been monitoring wind conditions off the island of Oahu for nearly a decade. Now the company is proposing a pair of projects 12 miles northwest and 17 miles south of the island. It would place floating wind energy platforms in federal waters, each outfitted with 51 turbines to generate 408 megawatts of energy. Generated energy would reach the island via undersea cables with possible connection points at Kahe or Waiau power plants, the Barbers Point Industrial Area, Wahiwa or downtown substations, and even in Kailua. The company says most major components would have a lifespan of 50 years, and then, if and when major repairs might be required, the turbines can be towed back to the harbor to avoid the requirement for and necessity of major offshore vessels and cranes. The proposal, which is an unsolicited lease request, is only the earliest step in the approval process. It's submitted under the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management and the Energy Policy Act of 2005. That act allows the Bureau to issue leases for renewable energy on the outer continental shelf, and the Bureau asserts that the Danish company is qualified to apply. Nonetheless, many hurdles lie ahead, including environmental reviews. Now, this is uh, you know a good number of miles, 12 miles uh, northwest, 17 miles south of Oahu, and uh, pretty much uh, out of uh, sight of anybody. But what's interesting is that you know they're proposing an undersea power cable. A couple of them. Yeah, and um, you know, maybe this is taking a little bit of the heat off the inner island power cable that was supposed to go from uh, Maui and Lanai. Well, it would certainly be one demonstration of that, and it doesn't certainly doesn't sound like it's going to get as deep as mm. that inter island cable would be, but I, I just like the fact that it's more of a federal program because it's so far out. It's, in the, it's on the continental shelf. Clearly, the state would have some opinions about the project, and that would be required in addition to the environmental review, but, but this is something that if it's far enough out, they might have actually fewer hurdles to jump than a project that someone's trying to Right. I mean, it's already called the Outer Continental (laughs) Shelf, so I'm not sure how much uh, jurisdiction the state has. Yeah, and you should look up uh, the technology. They have these wind float foundations, uh, and the local company is called uh, Alpha Wind Energy. So Mm -hmm. you can see what this technology looks like, but you wouldn't see it from from shore, so that's a good thing. Mm With the disappearing shoreline in Waikiki, beach erosion is already headline news. A new study published this week in the journal Nature Hazards gives island policymakers even more reason to worry. Looking at both historic changes in Hawaii's shorelines and the projected acceleration of sea level rise from a United Nations panel, scientists and state officials estimate that coastal erosion could double by the middle of this century. Scientists at the UH Manoa School of Ocean and Earth Science and Technology collaborated with counterparts at the State Department of Land and Natural Resources. The study covered 10 sites on Kauai, Oahu, and Maui with the beach erosion observed at these uh, these sites. And the numbers from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the study estimates 20 feet of off of shoreline recession by 2050 and another 20 feet by 2100. 
Lead author Tiffany Anderson said in a statement, Our results indicate that approximately 92% and 96% of the shorelines will be retreating by 2050 and 2100, respectively, except at Kailua on Oahu, which is projected to begin retreating by mid-century. To further improve the estimates of climate impacts, the next step for the team of researchers will be to combine the new model with assessments of increased flooding by waves. Well, you know, this is something that is already being, uh, um, I think, socialized. And I I know I've uh, sat in on some uh, presentations at the uh, city council about the potential for sort of beach erosion. And I think, uh, you know, these numbers projected out a little further. But uh, nevertheless, I think there's already recorded Erosion happening right now. Yeah, it's, it's it's you hear a lot about it, and I would say twenty years ago we would talk a lot about mm-hmm. it, but now it's pretty hard to ignore. Mm-hmm. I mean, Waikiki being the heart of our tourism industry, and you have all of these pictures, not just that the news is covering, but going on an Instagram where a walk along the beach in Waikiki is now a walk along a concrete, you know, overhang that's no longer near a beach. Mm-hmm. So when they're talking about twenty more feet by twenty fifty, that's within the lifetime of many people here today, and another twenty feet by twenty one hundred, uh, certainly something to worry about. Yeah, right. So we will uh, kind of keep track of this and see, you know, how it uh, evolves uh, in terms of uh, because, of know. course, we will be on the air in twenty one. That's right. That's right. I mean, I'm I'm planning for it. <laughs> Well, moving on to the tech calendar, a reminder of tomorrow's luncheon with the Hawaii Venture Capital Association. The theme is broadband. What we don't know about it could kill us, Whoa. featuring a panel of industry experts. Uh, things uh, kick off at 11.30 a.m. tomorrow over at the Plaza Club on 4th Street uh, in downtown Honolulu. And, of course, if you want to seek out more information, you can visit hvca.org. And if you're game for a movie, Inter-Island Terminal is wrapping up its Nerd Spring Break documentary films to keep your brain in gear. So it's it's Nerd Spring Break right now, but today is actually the last day. Tonight's final film is The Garden. It came out in 2008. And uh, before the film, there'll be excerpts from other documentaries that focus on local struggles over land access in Hawaii, Surely to be a lively conversation. The movie rolls at 6 p.m. Again, that's tonight at Kaka'ako Agora at 441 Cook Street, and the cost for this film is free. Free! Well, joining us right now in the studio is Jake Ross from CyberHui, and he's here to give us an update on the group's plans for the cybersecurity, I guess, education and uh, programs going on. Jake, welcome to Bike Mart Cafe. Welcome back. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Um, so, Cyber Who is having an ice cream social for coaches, mentors, students uh, who participated in the Cyber Patriot 7 competition. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, even if you didn't participate, if you just want to come out and learn more about Cyber Who and Cyber Patriot, we're um, more than willing to have you. It's going to be um, Saturday, April 4th from 3 to 5 p.m. at Referential Systems. That's just off Lagoon Drive right by the airport. Well, you know, I think uh, ice cream is certainly a good draw, but for those who aren't familiar with these programs, let's start with Cyber Hui. We did have you on previously to talk about it, but uh, it's a it's a pretty much a grassroots organization focused on cybersecurity, correct? Y- yes, exactly. So we're just a community of Hawaii cybersecurity professionals that have too much free time, I guess, and we dedicated <laughs> some time to sharing um, our skills and knowledge to high school students and college students and even expanded to some middle school as the Cyber Patriot program expanded into a middle school um, competition. And Cyber Patriot is a national It's a program. national. It's an Air Force Association-sponsored event, and it's um, the, the, the heart of Cyber Patriot is, is this cybersecurity kind of exercises, and it lasts from October all the way up to March. So they just wrapped up the finals for Cyber Patriot 8. Um, seven and registration for Cyber Patriot eight opens up on April first. So if you're interested, any any school, high school, middle school, um, clubs, boys boys club, girls club, 
scouts organization. So how how big is the uh, Cyber Patriot program now? So last year they had Cyber Patriot Six. I'm sorry, was uh, 1,500 schools um, organizations. Oh, nationally, uh-huh. nation uh, worldwide actually, because uh-huh. some of the Dodd schools, the DoD schools participate. Ah, okay. And um, I think this year they had about 2,000, just over 2,000 um, organizations participate. What about in Hawaii? I should have pulled those numbers. Oh, I think no, we're, no, no. We're, we're going to have you on okay. next week, and we'll talk more detail about the whole so you know, cyber patriot. We'll, we'll cover that. Got homework, Raj. Yeah, yeah. Now, one of the things that I had read was something about uh, cyber jeopardy or hacker jeopardy. What is that? So it's it's kind of a take on the DEF CON cyber, um, hacker jeopardy that, that they do, and the um, DEF CON is a cybersecurity um, conference? conference that uh-huh. happens in Vegas every year. But it's a PG-13 version because you know, <laughs> we're, we're kind of a lot of uh, uh, high school kids or, or underage people. And it's just... Jeopardy with um, cybersecurity questions, kind of, and we're gonna have prizes. We also have um, prize uh, tickets for ShakaCon Seven, which is coming up this June. They've they've given us some tickets, so we're gonna raffle those off, and we have like gift cards and just small trinkets and prizes to mm-hmm. keep things interesting. And ShakaCon has been around for a long time. It's sort of like our own DefCon, correct? Right, right. It's it's for those who can't travel and want to do something in the in the community. This this is a good um, and, and uh, ShakaCon what is kind of geared more for the uh, the industry, the professionals that, that that are in this business. It's mostly industry professionals, but they do bring in a lot of like outside talent. So there's been speakers from like Europe to come in, and uh, a lot of local people speak as well. But I'm I'm, I'm really kind of curious, and again, you know, we'll probably get into this more next week, but. Uh, there's a growing interest in cybersecurity, obviously, because of all the things that are going on. But uh, I think there's a lot more interest in getting school kids sort of more aware of, of cybersecurity. I mean, what's your what's your sense of all this? Right, I think so. I mean, I, um, there's been all these uh, talks about, like, the FBI director, Mueller, said uh, every every business is going to be hacked. There's two types of businesses. Mm-hmm. There's one that has been hacked and one that will be hacked. And and there's there's a demand for that for that person, all that cybersecurity trained people, and we want to we want to build that and train that. And I think there's a large opportunity to keep a lot of that talent in Hawaii to mm-hmm. to train them and keep them here. Mm-hmm. Well, my youngest son is ten, but he of course considers himself a computer person. Maybe even uses the name hacker. There was some news coverage recently about Cyber Patriot, and he said, "Wait, wait, wait! What's this? What's this competition? Is a competition for hackers? What does that mean?" Um, so at the education level, uh, if someone's listening and they have a, a young student in their family, I mean, what are the kinds of skills and tools that are most common that we're talking about? Is it, uh, you know, the kind of tools that that hackers are actually using to breach Sony Pictures Entertainment? Or are we really talking about what, uh, say, someone who works downtown would have to do to keep their uh, system secure? Right. So in any game, that this game, there's offense and defense. So we teach the defensive side. And, and at, to some point, you need to learn the offense. But in, there's like a certified ethical hacker course and certification. So right. it's, we kind of look at some of those things, but it's mostly defensive focused. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it's like securing your system. So what would, uh, if, if my son was interested, mm-hmm. what were the things that he should be playing with or looking at? Well, I mean, you can come to our website for more information, cyberhui.org, and we try and um, gather all the different resources out there, and then we kind of lead out to different uh, different pro- uh, other programs like Cyber Patriot. And, uh, so, so, so to test our, our listeners' sort of uh, knowledge about cybersecurity, give us an example of a uh, uh, you know the hacker, hacker jeopardy, jeopardy question. question. Well, we'll probably go over some of like the uh, like name this hacker kind of thing, and we'll, we'll give them like their call sign Mitnick. if you. Right, exactly. <laughs> so, so you get a prize. Who is it, Nick? Right. See, you have to phrase it in a form oh, of a question. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. All right. I haven't played Jeopardy for a while. So again, you have this ice cream social. So if you if you don't even understand fully cybersecurity and you're curious, I think the ice cream could be the hook. But where, once more, and when is this social you're organizing? So it's going to happen on Saturday, April 4th from 3 to 5 at Referential Systems Incorporated. Um, free ice cream. Please um, go to the website, cyberhui.org, for more information and to register there. 
All right. Sounds Thank good. you very much. Thank, Thank you. you. And uh, that's uh, well. Thanks, Jake, for joining us. And of course, uh, in the studio here is uh, Ryan Salcido. And of course, he goes by Sal, so we'll call him Sal. And he's gonna tell us a little bit about the newly formed Hawaii Drone Club. Uh, welcome to the show, Sal. Yeah, appreciate it. Uh, the Hawaii Drone Club. It's only been around here since uh, January of 2015. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I really saw um, a growing need for an organization here on the island to promote responsible, safe. Uh, and productive, you know, use of drones on the Hawaiian Islands. So that's that's basically the charter for the club. Well, we've talked about drones quite a bit. Uh, it's almost it's probably the number two topic of the show after exoplanets. That's right. We got yeah, we got to think of our frequently. the name of our show is going to change. <laughs> but uh, there are local groups. There are many experts. There are practitioners. There are enthusiasts. There are hobbyists. Yep. Um, but this club, the Hawaii Drone Club, you've taken that particular extra step to kind of give it a firmer footing as an organization, yep. and it has an affiliation with a larger group. Yeah, with the Academy of Model Aeronautics, so that's the AMA. Uh, the club, you don't have to be an AMA member to to be a part of the club, uh, but for uh, insurance purposes, when you go out and fly, and for example, with your son, if uh, we have uh, events where we f- teach kids and get them involved mm-hmm. with drones, uh, there is an issue of liability there, and people are concerned about you know letting their land be used in case there's you know injury. Right. You can say, hey, come and use my ranch to fly your drones, but uh, that might change the minute it, it strikes somebody or a piece of property. Right. So so that gives us the coverage there. Uh, and then also um, a number of commercial organizations here on the island are also part of the club. So it's, it's both for personal hobbyist use as well as for professional organizations. Now, with the, uh, with the affiliation with uh, uh, sort of a national organization, do you see the Hawaii Drone Club getting into the, uh, let's say, um, arena of training? Because I think training is going to become a very important piece of getting sort of drone certified. Right. Uh, and the, uh, um, the FAA just released a notice of proposed rulemaking. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so um, uh, it's actually going to require that for you to fly drones commercially – uh, both uh, uh, here in Hawaii or just anywhere in FAA airspace, you are going to have to require some sort of a certification. Uh, I don't think the club itself, uh, just being a, you know a, an organization, a nonprofit organization, is going to be in that as a business. Um, one of the uh, businesses that is a member of the club, the Hawaii Drone Academy, does have that as oh, a I charter. See. Okay, okay. So, uh, but the purpose of the club is really just to uh, educate, to kind of advocate. Uh, to do outreach and fellowship. So mm-hmm, it's just mm-hmm. a, a gathering. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, you talk about the education aspect, mm-hmm. and I think every time we've had a drone show, uh, that comes up quite a bit. And it's it's getting increasingly common to come up with the wonderful stories of, unfortunately, the bad or unintelligent things that people have done with drones. Yep. Just recently, mm-hmm. a video of a drone hitting a hitting 909 Kapiolani by yeah, the it. Blaisdell. <laughs> it hit the building twice because it was on autopilot. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, and there are more and more of these videos. You can just Google drone fail, and you've got a thousand of those. Uh, so you want to help educate people when they get these for Christmas or as gifts or they just think they're cool. What's the, the number one mistake that you see people making that you would probably put at the top of that 101 training or education dossier? Uh, it's unfortunate to say, but I would say flying in city parks is actually against the law. Any city park? Like- any any city park that is not otherwise specified um, as a, a model aircraft park. Oh, so I took my little SEMA, my tiny little drone with my son, mm-hmm. out to a 16-acre park in Mililani because it's the biggest park. But technically, that's a city and county park, probably not designated as a place uh, for someone to fly those. Yeah, on our website, uh, they, they'll list all the parks that, that uh, are approved by the city as model aircraft parks. Uh, and it's really unfortunate because it's basically uh, 
uh, forcing citizens to go out and either fly them against the law mm-hmm. or to fly them in, in an unsafe manner. So that's one of our, in terms of advocacy, we're uh, working with city council. If we can write legislation and have them uh, both, you know, citizens as well as organizations and companies champion so that we can use drones responsibly in a safe way uh, throughout the city of Honolulu. So on your website, you do kind of list out which parks are okay for flying drones and which ones aren't? Yes. And then what about, uh, let's say, the uh, homeowner, you know, he gets a present for Christmas uh, and somebody gave him a drone and he wants to fly it off of you know, from his backyard. What's the, what's the <laughs> legality of that? Uh, well, it depends on where he lives. If he lives right next to Honolulu Airport, he's going to have to contact uh, uh, air traffic right, okay, control. Okay. But uh, assuming that he just lives uh, maybe over in Kaimuki or... Uh, Let's say Pearl City someplace. Yeah, I know I, some guys in Pearl City. I think that, I can yeah. see where this is going, Bert, but okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, I mean, if you fly it within your own house, uh, within the bounds of your house... Uh, what about the airspace in my... I mean, what, what airspace do I have jurisdiction over? The uh, the FAA says that for model aircraft, for personal or recreational uses, you can fly it up to 400 feet. Right, but do I have to stay within the bounds of my property? You have to stay within the bounds of your property. Okay. So you can fly okay. up and down. Up and down, up and down. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I think an important part to note on this is that the uh, for personal recreational purposes, and that does not include using it for some sort of surveillance or spying on your neighbor or uh, making sure their dog's not in the backyard, that would be basically not be considered uh, appropriate use. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and unfortunately, mm-hmm. I mean, one of the things that you're going to talk about education is the education of the community because there is a lot of misinformation, a lot of natural hesitation and fear. Uh, there was a KITV story a couple of months ago that just made me I almost fainted at how ridiculous it was because the prep, the proposition was that drones could be used by burglars who want to break into your house because a giant swarming sound of buzzing bees is much less subtle than maybe sneaking around in your socks. But <laughs> anyway, I can see that. So you have a meeting coming up. I think it's your first meeting. If someone's interested in learning more, where and when is that event taking place? Yeah, it's tomorrow night. It's at, ah. the, it's at the Proto Hub, uh, which is down right? in, okay. yeah, downtown Kaka'ako, uh, right across the street from where they eat the street is or uh, Restaurant Row, uh, and in, all the information is on our website. Uh, the website is hawaiidroneclub.org. Sounds all good. Right. We'll, put it that, we'll put that up on our show notes uh, later on tonight. And thanks, Sal, for joining us. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. And, of course, that's what's been happening this week. We'll take a short break, and when we return, we'll be jumping right on board with the Moon Riders, talking to students and teachers working on this special NASA mission to the moon. How are students collaborating on this complex mission and what's involved? We'd, of course, love to hear your thoughts or questions as part of the conversation. You can give us a call at 941-3689 or from the neighbor islands. You can reach us at 877-941-3689. And we're live in the studio, meerkatting and tweeting. (laughs) So you can tweet us at Bite Marks or at Hawaii. This is Bite Marks Cafe. In the United States, using a bicycle to get around is mostly for the young, but in Europe, it's a way of life for all ages. In the Netherlands, for example, those 65 and older make 25%, one-fourth of their trips by bicycle, while in the U.S. this is less than 1%. I'm Sarah McConnell. Join me for With Good Reason, Thursdays at 6.30 on Hawaii Public Radio. From corporate offices to the vendors trying to make a living on the streets of New Delhi, corruption is a real problem. Anybody and everybody, you know, whoever gets an opportunity extorts money. I'm Kai Rizdal, the CD Secrets of the Indian Economy, next time on Marketplace from APN. This evening at 6, following Bite Marks Cafe.
Support for Bite Marks Cafe comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to contributors Straub Clinic and Hospital, Infinity of Honolulu, and Gourmet Events Hawaii. Welcome back to Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. And, of course, joining us here in the studio are Kimberly Peterson and Veronica Shea and and they're both from Iolani High School and That's on the right. uh, Moonriders Project. And hopefully we'll hear from other participants and teachers as well. But right now we have these two young ladies to talk about it. What got these two schools involved in Moonriders and what does the program do for students? We'd, of course, love to hear from you. You can give us a call at 941-3689 on Oahu or reach us at 877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands. Kimberly and Veronica, welcome to Bite Marks Cafe. Thanks for having us. Hello. No, you know we uh, we normally try to you know get the teachers involved, but you know we figured the we're real gonna, stars. We're, we're gonna, the yeah, students. we're gonna we're pushing the envelope, and we figured <laughs> we'd, we'd get rid of all the teachers, get rid of well, all the adults, okay. and we just have the students with us today. Okay, you know that's fun. So I want to get a um, sort of a broad view of of where this project sort of what the genesis of this project was, and. And from what I gather, I mean, there is a sort of a Google X Prize connection to it. There's the the idea of going to the moon, and the fact that you know, I mean, everybody who tells a story says that President Obama is really focusing on Mars and asteroids, but there really isn't any kind of lunar project uh, until until maybe this one, and maybe this is looking at being a stepping stone to Mars, perhaps. But kind of give us some. Um, uh, Kimberly, give us a sense of where is where's the where's the start of this project? Where did this idea come from? Well, you talked about the Google Lunar X Prize, and that really is um, since the disbanding of NASA is no longer going to the moon. It's kind of the only way that we can get to the moon nowadays because it's basically a competition of which private company can get to the moon, um, travel across the moon, and send, transmit data back to Earth. And so we're kind of hitching a ride to the moon on a Google Lunar X Prize team's lander, which is yet to be determined. But um, so we've been developing a bunch of tests and stuff for that. And Pisces was really instrumental in bringing together all of these different um, parts of the project, um, state, federal, and of course, the private. And so Pisces is really the, I mean, the group that reached out to the schools and kind of started this in um, high school. So, yeah. Because Pisces being the Pacific International yes. Space Center for Exploration Systems. Hey, hey I think good. I, I was going to ask you. They do, love those, <laughs> they do love those acronyms. And this is an organization that has been uh, on the Big Island for, I guess, several years. And mm-hmm. I think uh, they have recently got uh, kind of a uh, – well, there's a new director. His name is Rob Kelso. Yes. We're going to pr- try to get him on the radio uh, sometime <laughs> soon, too. Uh, but they've been very, I, I think, active in, in looking at some sort of um, less study-oriented and more kind of hands-on-oriented. Mm-hmm. So this this project certainly has that aspect. Now, uh, Veronica, tell us, do you have a how – did, how did Iolani uh, get sort of chosen? I mean, are there other high schools across the country that are involved with this project? Uh, and if so, I mean, uh, how did Iolani and, and Kealakehe sort of get – chosen to be representative of Hawaii? Um, as far to, as, of my, as my knowledge, I think we're really the only two for this project, mm-hmm. but Rob Kelso is really looking at, 
you know, future projects. And I think that's one of the big purposes of this project is to have future collaborations. He's looking at China and Japan. Mm. Um, but as to how um, Keala Kehi got involved, um, according to Rob Kelso, he um, kind of just left it up to the superintendent. Um, they were looking for a big island school because um, the volcanic ash there is very similar to the moon dust. So that you really wanted a school there that could kind of really be there to do the field testing um, and the um, superintendent chose Keala Kehi for their, you know, great robotics team, right, and right. they just kind of had that support there. Justin's really great, super knowledgeable about all this kind of thing. Um, on the private side, he offered this opportunity to all of the different private schools. Um, he p- offered it to Punahou, Kamehameha, Iolani, and they were actually really looking into doing it with Kamehameha because mm-hmm. they have that whole Hawaiian heritage thing. They kind of want to um, get into that and really make this a Hawaii thing because Rob Kelso really wants Hawaii to become a hub for aerospace activity. He thinks it's right. a perfect, it's a prime location. And But I think um, our headmaster, Timothy Cottrell, he was really instrumental in making sure Iolani was involved in this project. He's a real science guy, went to Princeton and everything. And he was just like, no, Iolani, you know, we got that backup. We got Sullivan Center, and um, it, that's just how we got it. He just was really eager to have our students involved with this project. Oh, so he kind of like, strong darn woman. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it seemed like Iolani was the school that showed the most interest, and yeah. so um, Pisces decided to go with us. Oh, that's great. That's great. <laughs> We're talking to Kimberly Peterson and Veronica Shea, both seniors at Iolani High School, about the Moon Riders program, how students in Hawaii are playing a part on a planned mission to Mars, testing technologies that will soon possibly be tested on the surface of the moon. If you are uh, interested in this program, if you've got a question, or if you're a science teacher, we'd of course love to hear from you. You can give us a call. Join us live on the air at 941-3689 or from the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. Now, Kimberly, you know, Bert and I are perhaps of a slightly different generation. We had <laughs> we had Star Trek and we had, uh, we had we had <laughs> we had space shuttle missions and things to really inspire us and make us dream of the possibilities of space exploration. But as as has been mentioned, you know, NASA uh, has a different mission, has different resources now, and I'm always wondering for younger people how they come into this fold when there's not a Mr. Spock and Captain Kirk to do it for them. So perhaps <laughs> you can share your story as where you said, hey, uh, space science and science in general is something that I want to explore. Well, I've always been extremely intrigued by science, and I'm actually looking into becoming a geophysicist, perhaps. And so um, my college counselor actually approached me with the project and said, hey, you know what? You love science. You're good at it. Why don't you try looking into this project? Um, because especially for Iolani, it's completely on your own volition that you join this project. We didn't, you know, we didn't like have any clubs, you know, come in and Wasn't become the Moon Riders. Yeah, mm-hmm, exactly. Mm-hmm. It's whoever's interested is allowed to come in, even if you're not a science person. I mean, there's so many different facets of this project, including public relations, obviously, as mm-hmm. we are here, are here right now. <laughs> good um, work. Good work. That um, you know you can be a, you, you can be involved in, and of course, space is one of the most interesting things that you know, a young scientist can ever be involved with, and especially this opportunity to be working with NASA and Pisces and all this incredible equipment was just um, an opportunity I couldn't, you know, turn down. And Veronica, what was it that drew you to this project? How did you hear about it? 
Um, well, I was actually in the first design and fabrication class at Iolani. Mm-hmm. So this is part of our I department classes because um, we have a new Sullivan Center, which is really focusing on application of knowledge and thinking outside of the box. So in the design and fabrication class, I work with our current club advisor, Mr. K- um, Gilson Killauer. And um, we did a lot of um, computer-aided design and laser cutting. And I guess I was a great student because he um, invited <laughs> me back. And he was like, Veronica, I think this is really right down your alley. Um, the My skills from design and fabrication, I guess, were, would be um, a nice fit for this club. So I've always been interested in science. When he told me we're sending something to the moon, I was, m- like, mind-blown. I was like, what? you got to be lying to me. But um, I just I, same thing as Kimberly. I couldn't pass it down. So how long has the... Uh, sort of Moon Riders project been going on? I mean, it sounds like, I mean, I want to ask you how many students are involved with the club, but when did it first get started? I understand maybe like beginning of last year? Uh, beginning of this school year, actually. School so year. back uh-huh. in September, um, they started the club. It had, you know, pretty few people at first, didn't get that much publicity until, um, you know, we started asking some robotics kids if they would be interested. Um, right now, it's about 15 people with a core group of around seven or eight. Um, every week we come in, we build, we work, you know, we're making, we're doing community outreach programs. Um, we have calls every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. with, with NASA and Pisces as well to, you know, keep, keep, keep the ball rolling. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I do want to talk about the specifics of this project. Uh, Moon Riders is an awesome name, but because scientists are involved, it is also an acronym. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) So, uh, Veronica, what does Moon Riders mean? And then what uh, is the, the, the technology specifically that you're exploring? Oh, is this a test? Oh, yeah. (laughs) Moon Riders stands for Research Investigating Dust Expulsion. Removal. Removal. Systems. <laughs> systems. All right. Okay. So it, it involves dust. So what? Wh- why is that something that uh, moon explorers are, are concerned about? Um, well, actually, when you looked at the Apollo missions, going way back here, um, you would see that the dust was something they really didn't think about. It was a very tiny thing, kind of just didn't come up in their minds. And the astronaut suits were being torn apart. It was getting into all of their equipment. You know, when they left, it actually came into the chamber, and they were breathing that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we don't know what the effect of the, this dust is. So um, the Na- NASA guy, Carlos Calle, he um, he was like, he designed the system that uses kind of um, electric fields and it's, um, charges the dust and uses that to repulse it. And it kind of makes this spiral that um, get, gets rid of it. And that's why... Um, we're using, um, we're testing it out now because it was such a big problem, and we're looking at going back to the moon. Mm-hmm. Now, um, I, I want to get back into the sort of the the, I guess maybe the detail as to what you folks respectively are involved in in terms of, I think, um, building the housing for for this unit. But we want to welcome uh, Justin Brown, who is from uh, Kealakehe and on the Big Island, and calling in. Hey, Justin, how's it going? Hey, Bert, it's uh it's good to hear you. Yeah, it's going uh, really well. So good. To, I'm um, glad you could uh, you could join us. Uh, you know, we we've got uh, uh, Kimberly and Veronica here in the studio with us, and uh, I wanted to make sure that we got some uh, Kealakehe representation. Uh, and so, tell us who's on uh, who's on the side over there with you. Yeah, I have uh, three of our students here. I have Amy Lowe. She's a senior. She does our our CAD, and I have Courtney Nelson. She's the head of our science division, and Caleb Bishop. He is in charge of the control systems and has really led up the 
physics end of the project. Well, Justin, we'd love to hear from them, but uh, before that, we we just heard how Iolani came to be involved, and uh, the, our guest here did give a good shout-out to your robotics programs, but perhaps you can give us a little bit more information on how Kela Kehe become in, became involved in Moon Riders. Certainly. So uh, the, the Pisces Agency, uh, Pacific International Space Center for Exploration Systems, uh, was con- contacted the superintendent's office, and uh, they contacted the complex area superintendents and asked for the complex area superintendents, which is the local uh, leadership of the DOE, to nominate schools. And we went through that process, and um, we we were we were selected by the superintendent to participate and uh, fortunately represent uh, the public school students of the state in this really exciting opportunity. It is a, an unusual and perhaps one of the first specific collaborations in terms of STEM and, and space exploration for public and private schools. You mentioned Amy, so perhaps we can hear from her. I saw her on the video that was taken up there when they were testing it, uh, I think, last week, and she represented very well. But, uh, uh, Amy, could you share um, your background and uh, what drew you to the Moonriders program? Um, I do a lot of robotics with Kalakai High School, and as part of the robotics team, we really like to explore different kinds of things, and so um, I've been working a lot with CAD, and using those skills in Moonriders has been really important for me, so that's kind of how I got involved with Moonriders. And when you mentioned CAD, that's uh, computer-aided design, and is that like for 3D printing and fabrication, things like that? Yes, it is, and um, so CAD is really important when we were trying to actually build the landers and make kind of um, connections to what the actual JLSP teams were doing and what we were trying to build ourselves. So, Amy, uh, you know, we've, uh, we've got the uh, Iolani team here, and they were telling us there's probably about 15 or so folks on, on the team on this side. Uh, how big is the uh, Keala Kehe team? And, and, and how did you guys sort of decide who does what on, on, <laughs> on the team with respect to uh, Moonriders? Um, so our team is about 36 people. Uh, we have... A core of team leader kind of group that kind of leads those kids and teaches them kind of the skills that they need within their own subgroups and things like that. So we kind of leverage the different skills that every person has and use them within Moonriders. All right. Well, um, I wonder if we could speak to another student. Uh, I think Justin had mentioned. Uh, uh, let's see. Courtney? Courtney, 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 Courtney Nelson. Yes. Um, yeah, Courtney's sitting here. She's a sophomore, and she's really led up our our science research, uh, doing a lot of the science protocol and looking at the geochemistry and how it relates both here on uh, the slopes of Mauna Kea and Mauna Loa to that of the Moon and Mars. I like it. So, uh, Courtney, uh, we we heard briefly about the electronic dust shield and how dust could be dangerous to Moon missions. Um, we've spoken a little bit on our show now and then. I'd say quite a bit about how the Big Island is used as an analog for uh, space exploration testing. So can you speak a little bit to that? I mean, what is it about where you are testing on the Big Island uh, specifically that makes it the best place for these experiments? So on the Big Island, we have a um, type of soil called tephra, and it's a glassy volcanic ash that is chemically and geologically similar to lunar regolith. I actually made a graph a couple days ago, and we have the NASA simulant, the Tephra, and actual moon regolith. And if you compare all three, they're almost completely similar in all of their different chemicals, which is very interesting. 
And not only are we using it, but it was also used by the Apollo astronauts and is what they're using for the Mars um, rover and missions in the future where they're planning on testing. I see, I cool. see. Now, um, I remember, uh, Justin, you had mentioned something to the effect that you can't really call any of that stuff on the moon or Mars soil for whatever reason, and I, I want you to help clarify that. And you instead use the term regolith. So, Sure, sure yeah, that's uh, something that Courtney keeps us real honest about, she, you know, being a scientist here. So I'll, I'll go ahead and let Courtney explain the technical definition. Okay, that. good. So the chemical composition of regolith and lunar dust is we have regolith here on Earth, but what's special and different about the moon is that it's not carbon-based at all. So we have a mixture of different compounds, but soil is defined as a carbon-based substance when regolith and lunar regolith is not. I see, I see. So, so the lunar regolith is based on, if it's not carbon, what is it mostly, like silica? Silicon dioxide. Oh, right. okay, okay. Now, also over there is Caleb Bishop. So, um, one last check in here if we could hear from Caleb. Uh, what is your specialty and what is it that you are doing on the Moonriders program? Um, so, so, my job here, I guess, has been to really go in um, to a deep understanding of what the actual electrodynamic dust field is and how it works. Um, so, I've gone into like figuring out what different kinds, or talking to the NASA people as well, about what kinds of forces that the EDS uses. And there's three main types of forces that the EDS uses. There's the Lorentz force, where it will interact with just charged particles. Um, and there's um, forces where it will interact with um, polar particles. Um, if a polar particle is exposed to an electro electric field, um, the poles, or uniform electric field, the poles will experience equal and opposite uh, electric forces, and it'll cancel out, so the particle won't actually move. Hmm. But if you expose a polar particle to a non-uniform electric field, the forces will not be even. They'll have a uh, net force, which will cause the particle to move. And this phenomenon is known as dielectrophoresis, and it's one of the primary forces that the EDS utilizes to mitigate particles from the EDS. Um, and there's a final class of particle that's not a charged particle or a um, polar particle. It's an uncharged nonpolar particle. And how the EDS works with these particles is that on the surface of these particles, there's a equal, equally distributed number of positive and negative surface charges. And when they're exposed to an electric field, they migrate to the poles of the particle. And the electric field will sort of induce a dipole onto this particle. And once it has a dipole, it can then experience the electrophoresis, which is how basically how the EDS will work. And this basically keeps, say, optics, lenses, and things like that, hopefully free of this dangerous dust. Yep. Well, that's great. And I, I, you know, I want to get into a little bit about what the uh, sort of teams did to experiment and check out you know, the functioning of the EDS and what they perhaps learned as a result of the uh, field test. So I want to hold that thought. We'll be right back after this uh, short break. 
to continue our conversation with uh, Kimberly Peterson and Veronica Shea, who's in here uh, in the studio with us. And of course, Justin Brown and the team from Keala Kehe on the line. And we're talking about the Moonriders mission. Okay, that team includes Amy Lowe, Courtney Nelson, and Caleb Bishop. So how do students find the right role for them? We'd, of course, love to hear from you as well. You can give us a call at 941-3689 or from the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. We'll be right back. This is Bite Marks Cafe. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Eric Maisel, author of Life Purpose Boot Camp. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about creativity and the creative process. Sunday morning at 11. Every day on Morning Edition, it's the news you can't do without. This morning, we've been looking at what's happening. There's conservatism, libertarianism, environmentalism, religion. We're not props. We're just everyday people. The crowd, the joy, the sense of hope. Historic. Listen to the next Morning Edition from NPR News. Weekday mornings from 5 to 8.30 on HPR One. Support for Bite Marks Cafe comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to contributors Nohea Gallery and Kaiser Permanente. Welcome back. This is Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. And we're talking to Kimberly Peterson and Veronica Shea from Iolani. And on the line at Kealakehe High School is Justin Brown, Amy Lowe, Courtney Nelson, and Caleb Bishop. And, you know, <laughs> right before the break, we were kind of talking about the uh, the different projects. And one of the things that we wanted to kind of explore is the idea of, of actually building the sort of representative lunar lander. And we want to talk a little bit about that. So, of course, if you want to give us a call, the number here is 941-3689 on Oahu or 877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands. Now, you know, when... Um, uh, Kimberly, you know, when I was talking to, uh, um, I guess, Mr. Kilauer, we were, you know, I was trying to figure out, like, what is it that he got the students to do to actually build the lunar, you know, sort of the example of the lunar lander? And, and the thing that I got the impression of is that they, or you, were able to take what was a picture of a lunar lander and construct it based on the picture. And I thought, well, maybe you, you know, you got some specifications, you got some detailed sort of uh, uh, 3D renderings. I mean, what is it that you actually got that you ended up building this model of the lunar lander? Well, actually... Well, we, Veronica, so, yeah, tell us. Okay. Sounds like um, you got the... You got the <laughs> <laughs> um, we actually originally did... Um, um, uh, we looked at a picture of mm-hmm. one of the other teams called Moon Express, and they were actually shocked that we were reverse engineering their lander from pictures. And they were like, what? You can't reverse engineer it? And they were all like concerned. So that's why we were so good. We had to move on to a different team because they were actually worried about privacy and all that stuff. Oh, really? So, <laughs> I mean, there was a um, – so this team that was, uh, I guess, uh, applying for the uh, Google uh, Lunar X Prize, I mean, they were kind of concerned that you might be yeah. revealing something yeah, that yeah, – yeah, yeah. Ah, interesting. So we, we switched to Astrobotics. Mm-hmm. Um, we tried to model theirs Which from- is the Griffin – Griffin, Griffin yeah. Lander and Andy Rover, and um, we used it on publicly available pictures. And we basically, you learn this in design and fabrication, mm-hmm. and the um, it's a eye department class at Iolani, part of our Sullivan Center. Um, the design and fabrication, 
you use um, computer-aided design, and you look at the picture, and it's actually not that hard to mock it up. You kind of just, um, it's, I don't know, like, as, because I was in the class, it's pretty, it's not that bad, and they were, they just basically looked at the picture, and they reverse-engineered from that picture. How do you determine, you know, the, let's say, the mountings or the joints? You know, how do you, there's probably some detail in, in creating a structurally sound lander. I mean, <laughs> how, can you t- how can you determine that from a picture? I think that really comes from the leadership of our um, advisor, Mr. Mm. Gilson Kilauer, because he's really an engineer guy. He's a real hands-on guy. He likes working with his hands. So um, we basically just zoomed in really close to the picture, and he looked at it, and he was kind of able to tell what type of building material you needed. And we used the... um, they actually sent us a 3D file, so we were able to use that. Mm-hmm. It just didn't have any information in the 3D file, but it was mm-hmm. like we were able to print it out. And then from that, we were kind of able to work backwards and break apart their 3D file. Now, from what I understand, the two different schools used two different models for mm-hmm. their uh, lander, um, uh, I'd say, reproductions. So let's go back to Kiala Kehe, and I think it was Amy Lowe who was the CAD lead on that team. Can uh, Amy, can you tell us a little bit about the lander design that your team used, and did you have to reverse engineer from pictures? <laughs> Hi. Um, yeah, so for ours, we... Um, we saw lots of pictures from, we were working specifically with Earthrise. Earthrise. Um, and their lander is also, was also, we had pictures and we had to reverse engineer, kind of recad what they had um, and develop kind of our own decisions um, and <laughs> hand by hand, like make each piece ourselves. Now, how big are these, uh, these models? I mean, are they as big as the... Uh, Amy, are they as big as the actual thing or scale down somewhat? Um, the Earthrise one, um, it's about three by three by four feet tall. Um, and it's an actual size uh, replica of the uh, Earthrise lander. Oh, oh so it's, a, it's a, an actual size. So... So, uh, Veronica, was the the mock-up that you folks built, was it an actual size or was it uh, scale? No, it was scale. The Astrobotics Griffin Lander is huge. Um, uh-huh. If I'm correct, I think we're about one-fourth of the size. So we ha- we, we made one-fourth one of the size. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It, I think it could have— it's, it's a half-scale model. So, I mean, in total area, it is oh. one-fourth of the size. So the—okay, so the purpose of building the mock-up was to— Get a sense as to where the EDS or the you know the uh, electronic dust shield would reside, right? And just for visualization purposes, this EDS unit would reside on the 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 foot, the lander, right, of the of the um, lunar lander. So it'd be on one of the extender, the foots that's gonna land. So when it hits the surface of the moon, it would kick up a bunch of dust, and then it would land on that the EDS and then it would you know then you could conduct that experiment mm-hmm. is that is that correct yes um and actually for the schools that was one of the, our main jobs was to find out where we want to place the EDS on that lander so we explored a variety of options you know 
looking at the camera and what type of visual data we were able to get. We were looking at placing it on the deck, under the deck, and we ultimately decided that because Astrobotics had an Andrew Rover that would come by and take a photo, that the footpad was the best location because you're kicking up the most dust. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, Justin, uh, at Kalakehe, I mean, um, I saw some videos of some of the testing happening, and it's kind of neat because they, you know, they do this uh, blast of air to eject the dust to basically cover the site with it. And um, as Veronica mentioned, you know, they're trying to find the right location for it. When this is finally deployed or when you're talking about it in its place, is it specifically going to be used to protect a specific instrument, or is there an EDS that you're going to try to develop that protects a significant portion of the lander? Well, I think some of that's still in development with uh, the selection of the partnership, um, as well as the work that Kennedy Space Center is doing as far as what's authorized with the uh, Space Act agreement and the Catalyst agreement that Kennedy Space Center is making. So the partnership with the school is really to uh, fit that final agreement that Kennedy developed into the private space launcher, whether it be Earthrise or Moon Express or Astrobotics. All of that is still kind of up in the air. And I think once we uh, launch lock in on one of those, those mm. schools will be working with that company exclusively. Now, uh, right now, oh, okay. uh, my understanding is that's going to be like an October decision. Hmm. The GLSP originally set a December 2015 launch deadline, but they extended it to 2016, December 2016, and for teams to still be eligible, they had to sign launch pad agreements by this year. So I think once we see the teams that sign launch pad agreements, then we'll be able to move into that final flight unit uh, ready hardware and decide on the exact placement with the understanding that you explained that coming down and the the gap system as far as maneuverability on whatever the lander is will plume up enough dust so that we can see the experiment uh, activate and hopefully work really well. Right mm-hmm. now, Caleb uh, at Kalakehe, Caleb spoke a lot about uh, very knowledgeably and perhaps dizzyingly to me how <laughs> the magnetic fields uh, interacted to allow the movement of this dust. So, Caleb, I'm curious, is this technology, this EDS, something that, uh, I mean, how large an area can this apply to? Can someone say, hey, I want an EDS for my car and my windshield, or is it really something that happens on a small scale? Currently, the device is only about the size of, the, of, of your palm on your hand. Um, so they're just looking at putting it on small solar panels while it's in development or on a camera lens. Um, but what they're really looking at is because of how the dust has been tearing through astronaut suits, they're looking at putting EDS into fabrics that you could then make suits out of. But you could really um, put this device into any shape or form when it's fully developed. Great. So, um, Courtney, I mean, in terms of the uh, part that the students play, uh, you have an EDS unit that you are working with. Uh, what part of it that is it that the students actually are helping to design? Um, I understand it's, it's the housing. So what is it that you are trying to determine with creating the housing? So I have mostly been studying the lunar dust and its effects and why we need the EDS so badly mm-hmm. and to lead up into like what housing would be nice based on that. But Amy would be a specialist in the housing itself, so I'm going to hand it over to her. Okay. Hi. So with the actual housing, what we needed to do was basically design it to hold the actual EDS. Ours was, like Caleb said, kind of really small, the size of your palm. Um and it was going to go on a camera lens. And so what we did initially was we went through a lot of design processes, and we worked really well with aluminum. And so we really wanted to 
use that. But um, turns out the EDS, since it uses a really high voltage, um, we didn't actually want to use something that could potentially be like conductive or um, have some kind of metal in it. So we mm-hmm. had to move over to Lexan. Um, and so we basically took the Lexan and hand milled um, and precisely kind of marked out and designed the actual thing by hand, the whole thing, and uh, fabricated it and sent it to NASA for them to actually put the EDS inside of it. Oh, okay. I see, I see. Now, uh, Kimberly, uh, you know, I'm kind of curious. You folks recently just went over to the Big Island. You guys had some field tests where the mock-ups were brought over, the EDS was mounted on the, the lander, and it was actually... Uh, I guess uh, a dust storm was sort of induced by yes. you know, fans blowing all the dust around. What did you guys learn from that field test? Well, from the two days that the Iolani team spent up there testing, um, we really learned the entire you know, scientific process and like hypotheses, you know, data collection. And what we found is that, um, especially for the PV readings, like obviously the weather played a large factor in that. And also we, we discovered that the PV readings were actually extremely helpful backups um, in determining whether the EDS was successful or not. Because we found a correlation in the successful dust repulsion and um, hikes in the PV readings from the more, you know, the cleared um, So when panels. you talk about PV, you talk about photovoltaic. Yeah, photovoltaic. And then is the photovoltaic part of the experiment or is that sort of a separate piece of the, you know, sort of the system? Veronica? Um, the photovoltaic was actually something Iolani suggested, so they are still taking that into consideration. Mm-hmm. But I think seeing the strong results from the field test and seeing, you know, when the Andy rover comes by on the moon, it's going to take one picture and that's it, and then you're never going to see it again. And that's all the visual data you're really getting. But the PV allows us to continue to get data on this experiment and to get a continuous stream of, you know, kind of what's going on quantitatively. So I think seeing the strong results from the field test, because just from the numbers, I didn't need a picture. I could just look at the numbers and be like, the experiment wasn't that great this time, or it was a really successful mm. run. So help me help me understand. So you have the EDS, which has a sort of a uh, a, uh, a surface that is getting cleared by the you know the, the dust. Mm-hmm. Is there a PV that's also separate to that, or is the PV incorporated into the EDS? It's incorporated it, into oh, that. So it's like if you see this little tiny screen that mm-hmm, we have, mm-hmm. you have. A part of it is actually uh, just a tiny bit of PV there. Oh, I see. Okay. Let's uh, um, hear from Courtney again um, because of her interest in the dust and how it impacts these missions. Um, One of the things that I know happens when you go to a uh, field test versus your theoreticals, your designs, your computer models, is that the real world really isn't as cooperative Mm -hmm. as your plans are. Uh, So, Courtney, was there anything that you... Uh, observed or any experience that completely surprised you uh, versus what you expected when you went up to conduct these tests? So when we were doing our benchtop testing, what we noticed is that the EDS wasn't working as well with the volcanic ash as it was with the GSD-1A stimulant. And so looking here at the chemical compositions of the TEFRA and the GSD-1A, I can clearly see that there is more iron in the TEFRA, so that could be a possible reason for our issues. But if we're also looking at the moon again, um, there is not too much iron in the moon. There's way more iron in the TEFRA than actually in the moon. Mm-hmm. So how would, how would any of this uh, 
revelation, I guess, impact your redesign? So when we're looking at this, we changed um, most of our testing procedures to the GSU1A. And then while we were testing, we also noticed that the humidity was a really large issue. We mm. almost got up to, we were at 96% humidity, mm. and we had to stop testing because it's unsafe for the EDS device to be testing in that level of humidity. Ah. But we're really excited to be going to the NASA Ames Space Center next week to be testing with more GSUNA because they have three tons at their lunar stimulant center. Wow. Oh, that makes sense because, yeah, rain would definitely and humidity would definitely mm-hmm. be a problem. Now, before we run out of time, I wanted to check with both schools to see what the next step is, what they're looking forward to, what their next phase is. Justin, uh, for Kalakehi, it's, I mean, it sounds like this trip is certainly a big milestone, but what's ahead for your team and Moonriders? Yeah, certainly. So uh, next week, we're really fortunate to be visiting NASA Ames Research Center to do three days of testing and briefing in the Silicon Valley area about this project and all the partner agencies. We have scheduled and are in the process of uh, continuing to schedule all of the schools on west side, and we're looking to move over to east side. We have various forms of this presentation where students build rockets and get to do uh, dust sampling and hear about the project because ultimately this is a multi-year endeavor and we, we hope that even the elementary school students will be impacted uh, by it and get to participate in it when they get up here. Uh, then in the summertime we're looking to do some continued testing and work with other teams as they come into the Big Island to utilize the resources and then both teams will be visiting back in the fall to do final testing on the unit that's informed by the data from these tests. So over the next few months the kids are going to continue to write up their science papers we had uh, six kids enter a specific symposium on science papers related to this and the data that they have now, particularly Caleb's simulation and Courtney's understanding with the geochemistry and some of the causalities um, for why we got our experimental results. Yeah, yeah. That'll be analyzed and we'll be sending those papers over to Kennedy. So that's kind of the, the six-month plan for I, us. I, okay, I love it. Good. I love that you're doing that. Uh, now, that real, real quickly, uh, uh, Kimberly, I mean, what what's the plan for you? Because you're going to graduate pretty soon. I mean, you, yeah, you, I unfortunately, know. you're not going to see this thing actually launch. But so what, what are you going to be doing sort of until the point where you have to graduate and leave? Well, we will be, just like Kayla Kehe, we'll be working on the papers to be reviewed by Kennedy over the summer. We'll also be um, doing more community outreach, you know, really getting the word out about this incredible project. And um, we're also going to be, you know, training some of the new members for next year so that they're not so lost when we leave. <laughs> so is there a website where someone can go to find more information? Yeah, sure. You can hit us up on um, Instagram at Iolani underscore Moonriders, on Twitter at iMoonriders, our Facebook page, Iolani Moonriders, once again, or our website. I w- like it. iMoonriders.org? iMoonriders.org. Got it. Okay. Now, <laughs> Thank Justin, you. we'll put your uh, links on our show notes at uh, bitemarscafe.org. And, of course, Kimberly Peterson and Veronica Shea students and seniors over at Iolani. And, of course, Justin Brown, along with Amy Lowe and Courtney Nelson and Caleb Bishop. We want to thank uh, all of them from Kealakehe High School for joining us today. Thank you, guys. Thank you so thank you much. So much. Hey, thanks so much, Barry. All right. And thank you for listening to Bite Marks Cafe. You can join us next week when we learn more about cybersecurity and education. And, of course, if you miss any part of this edition, you can find the podcast of tonight's show on BiteMarksCafe.org. And if you have any comments or suggestions, email us at feedback at BiteMarks.org. Of course, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at BiteMarks. And you can follow me at Hawaii. Our engineer is David Chung, and our executive producer is Beth Ann Koslovich. And we leave you with our song pick of the week. Here's a band called Night Fields and a song called You I Never Knew. See you next week on another edition of Bite Marks Cafe. Yeah.